Section 23 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Gauntz. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Volume 2, Chapter 9. Reading Between the Lines. As the colonel, in the privacy of his room in the little Craven Street Hotel, his face blanched livid, and the trifle of paper on which the, to him, surprising and strange epistle was scrawled, twirled and fluttered from his trembling loosened grasp, twirled across the room in the cool light summer morning breeze which came in at the open window, and then what seemed to him as like a billet from the grave, from the hand of the dying or the dead, the flimsy messenger lighted on the floor. Colonel Vandermeulen became absorbed in thought. Then his midnight visitant, who had appeared to him and disappeared so mysteriously in his little, now far-off den at Battery Park, that Merville Garnier, Bertram Gono, or whoever on earth he might be, was still not dead, was yet an active entity of life. The detective stooped down and picked up the flimsy missive from the floor. He examined it closely, and did that which those sharp, clever people do who wish to know more than their correspondents intend to tell, and that is a faculty which when the correspondent is equally clever and sharp, he knows well how to turn to his own account. Colonel Vandermeulen read between the lines. That is, he conjectured from what was left unsaid, a great deal more than the mysterious writer knew that he was telling, and perhaps from that flimsy half-leaf torn from the memorandum or pocket-book, Colonel Vandermeulen, reading between the lines, learnt as much as if his correspondent had covered a half-sheet of foolscap with words. Adding the World Reporter's graphic newspaper account of the fire at Long Island City, and what he himself had seen at the fire to the fact of the missive which he held in his hand, and putting the two and two together, and still reading between the lines, Colonel Vandermeulen came to the conclusion that, notwithstanding the New York world's sensational and highly colored narrative, notwithstanding what both he, the colonel, and his little gray-coated assistant Paul Nugas had both witnessed, yet by some miracle of chance the man, who for want of any greater certainty as to his true identity we must call Merville Garnier, had somehow, by some marvel of mysteries, escaped at least with his life. How he could have thus escaped would have seemed a miracle to those who, as he fell among the rushing, devouring elements, amid the crashing, falling timbers, saw his apparent and horrid fate. But instances of hairbreadth escape are not wanting throughout the whole range of fiction and travel and adventure, and indeed in sober, ordinary, everyday life and fact, and this might be, probably was, only one other added to the startling list of such as these. That was what Colonel Vandermeulen conjectured and thought. Then he went on to read between the lines. Having much yet to tell, we must refrain from finding space in these chapters to repeat everything that, by this process of reading between the lines, Colonel Vandermeulen came to know. But the scrawly handwriting, the postponement of the appointed meeting, what he himself had seen, all these facts put together led him to feel mentally convinced that somewhere in or near New York, the man Merville Garnier, whoever he might be, lay perhaps nursed by strangers, probably suffering from serious bodily injuries, 
but from which he believed he would recover, probably even now writhing in agony, scarce able to move to and fro the hand which had scrawled those characters, and peradventure swaying betwixt life and death. Although the little missive which must in some way have got into and come through the New York post office, thence to the detective's battery park den, then across three thousand miles of ocean and three hundred miles of land to the little Craven Street Hotel, said not a word of all this, yet just as the keen and practiced eye of the Indian on the war trail reads the footprints upon the sand, the marks on the bushes and grass, Likewise, almost as plainly as if the disabled writer had written it, as surely as if in words he had been told it, that was what Colonel Vandermeulen read. As he thought it over, the whole surroundings, the setting, as we may call it, of the case, seemed to his sharp, experienced eyes and acute intelligence as clear as day. For in some inexplicable way, American life, or the American climate or atmosphere, is a wondrous sharpener a wondrous quickener of intelligence and thought. The day wore on in which the American had received from New York this little epistle, which afforded him such a very valuable and startling page of information in so very few words. And as during his wanderings and explorations about the London streets, adding what he could to his fund of knowledge of our great overgrown city, marveling, as most foreigners who see it with intelligent eyes do, and as every native must, at its greatnesses and its littlenesses, at the wondrous variety of its wonders side by side with the petty commonplacenesses of its everyday life. As the day wore on and he revolved the newly known circumstances in his mind, they seemed to him to add but little or nothing, to give him indeed no great reason for any change in his course. As to wondering, he had ceased to wonder, had ceased to wonder at the inexplicable development of the complex but important and interesting case which had come into his hands, for it seemed to him like the acting of a chapter of fiction, or some wild romance. Whatever might now occur in connection with the Vernwood tragedy would probably have caused him but small or no surprise. He had arrived at a stage beyond surprise. Had the whole phalanx in all their generations of those dead and gone Gnaus appeared to him in ghostly shape, all those men of the bygone past whose iron and steel-clad effigies with their tall banneretted lances stood now so grimly and silently around the great Vernwood Hall, while their bodies rotted or their bones decayed in the dank, damp mausoleum, and their souls sang jubilees in heaven or writhed in agony elsewhere. Had they now all passed before him in their grim array, it is likely that the hardened New York detective and grand army man of the United States would have sat down and calmly, unastonished and unmoved, have surveyed the whole ghostly company through the fragrant upward-circling fumes of his twenty-cent weed. We write this, of course, only figuratively, but to such a degree had now grown to be the incredulous, unbelieving tenor concerning the Vernwood mystery of this man's mind and thoughts. Nothing, no circumstance that could arise, would have caused him much, if any, surprise in connection with this strange and even to his experienced mind, this inexplicable case. The day wore through, 
and Colonel Vandermeulen had in some way even to go so far as to tax his ingenuity to get rid of his time. He chafed and fumed to himself at the vexatious loss of valuable hours and days, because there was no other person but himself to whom he could chafe and fume. Mr. Lumley, whom he should have interviewed promptly on reaching London, was away from town, he didn't know exactly where, beyond his reach. For, like many busy men, Mr. Lumley, when he chose to emancipate himself from the cares and toils of his profession, left no very definite trace or information as to his probable whereabouts behind, for he always argued, quite rightly, that if the retirement of his brief, well-earned vacations was to be broken in upon by the intrusions and questions of his office every other hour of the twelve, he had better remain in town and not attempt to take any respite of the nature of a holiday at all. Besides, the New York detective had crossed the ocean without any solicitation from his London correspondent, on his own responsibility, for his own satisfaction, and at his own risk, and at his own cost. Nobody had asked him to come. He was in England neither at the invitation or instigation of Mr. Lumley or of Dr. Sirius Wells. So, if he was losing valuable time, he had himself only to thank for the loss. But Colonel Vandermeulen was a man whose natural sagacity led him into very, very few mistakes. He was as wary as a giraffe, as keen-eyed as a lynx or a hawk, and if he had not felt sure that in one way or another his visit to London would turn out a profitable investment of time and money and bodily wear and tear, he would most probably have remained in New York. When he booked from New York to London, he did it with his usually wide-open eyes. And now here he was in London, and in London, till there came some turn of the tide, he must exist and subsist, and resolved to remain. And thus it was that as morning turned into afternoon, and as afternoon waned into evening, and evening shadowed into night, and London began to awake into those dissipations which shun the light of day, under the glare and brilliancy of the gaslight, Colonel Vandermeulen found himself in the somewhat lively vicinity of Leicester Square, for the denizens of this part of London become most wide awake as the steady-going inhabitants of the suburbs and shires think it advisable to retire to sleep. Before his eyes a large theatrical establishment was just about opening its doors, and its broad façade was brilliantly aglow with attractive illuminated designs, while an imposing array of placarded pictures of dancing beauties, entrancing ballets, convulsing oddities, and astonishing wonders had the desired effect of luring the very necessary and moderate entrance fee from the usually unimpressionable detective's pocket, and Colonel Vandermeulen found himself within its doors. Certainly the combined spectacular effect which the entertainment produced, of so much color and so much tinsel and so much light, so much beauty, so much muscular agility, so much enravishing music upon and about the stage, and so much allurement among those who were supposed to be there with the purpose of looking on, that the New Yorker thought he had never seen equaled, and he was sure he had never seen excelled, not even in that hub of the universe New York, and Colonel Vandermeulen felt that he had something yet to learn. Then suddenly there entered into Colonel Vandermeulen's heart to conceive how it was all done, 
and by means of the expenditure of a little more of his wealth, of persuasion, of cajolery, he passed that jealously guarded portal which separates the professional world from the common, and behind the scenes stood among such a marvellous crowd of men and women, young, middle-aged, and old, as only the requirements of a large theatrical establishment can collect from the masses of ordinary humanity which crowd the great metropolis, and remold, redress, and reproduce them into the semblance of kings, or queens, or warriors, or fairies, or gnomes, and every character and creature under heaven which human eyes ever saw or human imagination ever conceived. It was among this crowd, among this wonderful melange of characters, that Colonel Vandermeulen stood. It is beyond the modest power of the writer of these pages, by means of mere words, to paint even in the faintest colors the mixture of character, mixture of character in every way, which Colonel Vandermeulen beheld about him. It added a page to his experience, and a chapter to his life. And yet all was humanity intensity of humanity, and that surely not in its most exalted state. A certain poet has told us that all the world's a stage, and when we see actors and actresses posturing, bowing, walking, talking in grandiloquently shapely periods in their parts, we must not forget that they too, like us, are only men and women, weighted with all the woes and realities, the joys and sorrows, the hopes and fears of an inner life. Strip off the semblance of the king, and there remains the man. And when we come too near, we cannot but discover too much for our own pleasure of the paint, the spangles, the tinsel, and the gloss, that much, very much of this is outward show, unreal, assumed. Around Colonel Vandermeulen were men in mimic armor, but they were men, walking, working, drinking, toiling men. There were mimic kings in all the faded glories of their sham estate, but these kings were the merest men, perhaps merely society's dregs. There were mimic queens and fairies, but they were human only, with all the frailties and longings and attributes of their sex. There too was the mimic semblance of beings which people only the myth-historic and imaginary realms of fable, fiction, or romance. Creatures of mere fancy, denizens of worlds which no human eye, except the eye of fantasy, has ever seen. It was between the acts, the curtain was drawn when the American stood in the midst of this wondrous and motley assemblage which moved and surged in hundreds round him, each engaged as on the active business of life. Men, women, boys, girls, and children of every age and either sex, attired or semi-attired, in all the extravagance and oddities which appertain to opera comique or burlesque. Then suddenly, out of this wondrous throng, there started up again before the astonished Vandermeulen, in the midst of the crowd, like some apparition from the dead, what seemed to be the troubling apparition of a haunted life. For there again, in the flesh or in the spirit, he was afraid to determine whether corporeal or only in ghostly guise, there stood before him that same Merville Garnier, or whoever or whatever he might be, again, his midnight visitor of New York, no other than the same whom he was asked to believe was murdered in England, burnt, according to the New York world's report, to a cinder at the great fire in Long Island City, 
and from whom that very morning he believed he had received a missive written in New York. We have said before this that Colonel Vandermeulen's condition of mind was a condition beyond the influence of surprise, and now was added still another stretch to the strain of incredulity with which he was possessed. Although indifferent and in some kind of theatrical guise, there stood before him the same tall form, there appeared the same face with the right cheek indelibly scarred, there was when he laughed the same sardonic Mephistophelian laugh. Colonel Vandermeulen felt he could have pointed him out, identified him for the most exacting requirements of justice, recognized him out of a thousand men. There must be a truth, as there is a truth in everything, no matter how apparently impenetrable is the veil of mystery and disguise. But what that truth was, it was beyond the experience or power of the New York detective Colonel Vandermeulen to divine. Was he being made the victim of some gigantic hoax, or was the case the most remarkable, the most inexplicable of his life? If it cost him years of toil, years of thought, Vandermeulen swore inwardly to himself he would know. He would probe to its depths the tantalizing enigma by which he almost began to believe himself hoodwinked and befooled. End of section 23